0: The Watch Pod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead Goodyear more driven. Don't miss Football America's the new soccer debate show where Hercules Gomez and Sebastian Salazar cover the U.S. and Mexican national teams throughout the season. Stream new episodes every Monday and Thursday only at ESPN+. Plus. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. And with the NFL Draft just a day away, don't forget to check out First Draft with Mel Kuyper Jr., Todd McShea, and Field Yates wherever you get your podcasts. Here's something cool coming on Monday. ESPN is doing its first ever Marvel-inspired presentation of an NBA game for the Warriors-Pelicans matchup. The telecast is going to integrate elements from an original Marvel story and include iconic heroes like the Black Panther, Iron Man, Black Widow, and Captain America. There will be 3D virtual effects, custom graphics, and animations. The traditional telecast will be on ESPN, but you're going to want to check out this Marvel version on ESPN two, ESPN Deportes, and ESPN Plus at 730 Eastern on Monday. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the WojPod. Pod. Here with the great Jay Billis, ESPN's college basketball analyst, the Kurt Gowdy Award winner, member of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, author of Toughness, Developing True Strength on and Off the Court, and of course the 108th pick of the 1986 <laughs> NBA draft by the Dallas Mavericks. How are you, Jay?
1: I should have been the 106th pick. I got screwed. Where, where were you on draft night in 1986? I was at home. I, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I actually went home, and I was staying with my parents and uh, didn't know I was drafted until I got a telegram, I think, from from the Mavericks um, because I don't remember that. I don't remember whether the draft was a heavy, heavily televised thing or not. I don't remember watching it back then. Uh, and then I found out, you know, obviously the next day I found out that Lynn Bias had died. Uh, my mom told me, um, which was, was surreal, sort of that whole thing.
0: Yeah. I remember, uh, I was growing up in, Br- growing up in Bristol then. I believe I was a, f- I was in high school and I remember it was a half day of school and I remember walking home from school, and walking in and turning the television on, and seeing it on CNN, and just not even understanding, right, what what they were saying.
1: Yeah, it, it, I, I think for our generation, uh, that was the equivalent, at least in sports, of of my parents and probably yours knowing exactly where they were when uh, they learned that uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. It was that kind of, you know, oh my god moment. Where I'll never forget, you know, the way I learned it, and I'll never forget how I felt. I mean, it's still really fresh and palpable. Whenever I talk about Len Bias,
0: that 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 day specifically. Yeah, we we did, I think that the anniversary. There were some retrospectives. I think last year, right, Jay, you were part mm-hmm. of. I could listen to every one of you could go on for hours about. Len Bias, you, Mike Wilbon, who covered him, you who played against him, were a rival in the ACC. And um, boy, his game too. You think of how the game evolved um, at his position in any era. He was he was on his way to he was on his way to start him. Maybe he was a Hall of Famer, maybe he was an All Star. Whatever it was going to be. Um, but boy, you could sure see Len Bias translating into the way the games played now, huh?
1: I think so. That's a great call about about the way it would translate now uh, at the time. I really do believe, and this seems almost blasphemous to say, that he would have been a legitimate rival to, to Michael Jordan. He was that talented and that good. to be, a, And he was a two-footed leaper, so he wasn't one of those guys that went off of one foot and did things. But he was a powerful athlete and a powerful leaper that played, played above the rim. Uh, But usually those guys, at least in my experience, weren't always the best shooters. And he was the best shooter, just a ridiculously great shooter that even got better as a shooter as he went through college Uh, and and a beautiful, just a beautiful athlete, Um, graceful, you know, combined power and grace. And we used to, I mean, we used to refer to him as Superman, even in college that uh, I remember coming back to a huddle one time, he scored 41 on us. Uh, at Duke, we wound up winning the game by double digits, but he had we couldn't stop him and I remember coming back to the huddle and one of our guys saying, "I'm trying to foul him, and I can't do it you know one of one of those things right. where we
0: just had no answer for him, Hey, Jay, when you look right now at the landscape of of basketball and the feeder system into the n b a it feels like it's it feels like the ground is starting to move underneath. How guys are? I, I guess the roots and the options. All of a sudden, the the ignite the G League ignite program. I think was has been deemed a success this year. I think there'll be maybe more players going into it. I think that may solidify itself as a root until they do away with one and done. And I think once one and done goes away and high school players can come out, you won't need an ignite program. But that's probably still a few years away until the next collective bargaining talks. And now you've got these emerging professional leagues where they want to recruit juniors and seniors in high school, uh, the, the OTE, the overtime league, and basically put them almost in an, it feels like an academy setting. They get paid, they can go get, they can do the uh, things, you know, the, the, uh, you know, get some of the outside uh, likeness revenue that they can't get in college. Uh, obviously, you could get a shoe deal at, at any age, i suppose if if you're um, deemed good enough uh th- we will see if those can really get off the ground. It seems like they have some funding uh Kevin Ollie's gonna run the uh, that overtime program now and um it it's and then college basketball has turned you know the portal has changed i think I guess just uh certainly how talent's moving around. Um, I cer- certainly can impact how coaches recruit and I think mentally how players come through the system. They can move every year now if if they choose to. uh what what do you think the residual is, Jay, moving forward of all this at the grassroots level and, and then how do you think this impacts the kind of player uh the kind of uh, uh person that's coming into the league? Yeah, those are profound questions. I, I think
1: that first and foremost, it shows that college basketball is becoming and and could very well be diminished in the future, as far as, as how many quality players choose it. And I think that's a direct result of the mismanagement of the college game, that, that it's been horribly mismanaged. Uh, And and to the point where those in charge haven't seen the have been blind to the trends or or willfully ignorant of the trends in the game. Um, And I think it's going to mean that more and more of the best players are going to earlier in their lives uh, dedicate themselves to basketball outside of the uh, scholastic system, Uh, whether it's uh, doing the the overtime uh, area or you know, going more toward academies or things where they're not playing for their their high school or a college. And you know, on one level, Woj, I mean, I, I it's not a selfish thing where I'm going, well, you know, I want to watch the best players play. I watch them play whether they're in the NBA or college. I don't discern that. I'm a fan of all of it. I love basketball. I don't just love college basketball. I don't just love the NBA. I love it all. So I'm not worried about that. There, there are, I do have a little bit of concern that given the way our system has run, uh, you know, socially over the years, especially for a young person, that, uh, you know, not having any sort of relationship with higher education before you go pro, it, it means it's less likely that you're going to go back to school and pursue an education. I think that's an important thing. I mean, I don't want to sound Pollyanna on this, but on this subject, but. I really do think it's an important thing for for anyone to go to college if they if they have the opportunity. And so even with one and done, I've not been against one and done because I, I think Zion Williamson going to college or Kevin Durant, Derek Rose, you name it, Kevin Love going to college for a year was a good thing for everybody. Um, and I, I don't you know, I don't think it's a good thing for the NBA necessarily to have players uh, come in at age 18 or age 19 uh, right into the league. But but uh, everybody's sensibility, I think it's the, the college system seems to be saying, quit sending them our way if they're not going to stay here for if they don't want to be Shane Battier or Bill Bradley, we don't want them at all. And it, but that's the don't you feel like that's the vibe they send out? And I, I think it's really unfortunate because it filters down to young people that are going, OK, well, if you don't want me, I won't go because you're, you're pretty restrictive in the way you do things anyway. And the big fallacy is and I talk to people about this all the time. The big fallacy is we think if a player is not ready to play in the NBA right now, that if they go the professional route and play in the G League, that somehow they're not getting developed mm. as well as they would in college. They're probably getting developed better, frankly. You it's could, just out of our view.
0: Well, it's funny because people will say, hey, you don't turn, you're don't you not going to get drafted. Do not go into the draft. You're going to go undrafted. And listen, in some cases – it's advice that you might want to heed, and but, but what are your expectations? Because you could go into the draft and go undrafted, Jay, and get a two way contract and make four hundred thousand plus dollars next year, and play in the G League, maybe be up in the NBA a little bit, or you know exhibit ten contracts. There's that pay you certainly a a livable wage and an opportunity to grow and play and. You know, you said this, I've heard you say this a number of times, Jay, and and I think it, it goes back to what you were just saying about whether college basketball or, or, or the structure is saying, unless you, like you said, you're Shane Battier or you're, you're a four-year player or a three-year player. We You've always said, let each school decide what their standards are. And if, if um, I'm just picking a school, if Temple wants to take players who are non-qualifiers from the city of Philly, you know, players that John Chaney recruited um, in his time there and had great success with. And Duke wants to take somebody else and Georgia Tech wants and let each school decide who they want to accept and play. And I think there's always a sense of, well, it's going to be this very uneven playing field. And it's not, right? It's It's not.
1: I don't think it is. I mean, it it, it sort of presumes that there is a, a race to the bottom and and I don't buy that. I don't think people are gonna you know, schools are gonna do things against their interests and all of a sudden that that uh you know very selective schools are, are gonna recruit these players that can't make it or can't you know, can't read or things like that. You know, those were things that that the NCAA was embarrassed about like in the seventies and eighties when there was a A player at Creighton that they found out uh, wasn't, you know, was illiterate, something like that. Uh, As if that was going to be the norm if they didn't have, you know, some minimum standard. And you know, it's it's sort of the you mentioned the transfer portal uh, earlier. It's the same kind of thing, where you know the coaches the coaches don't want to accept responsibility for that. But the reason we have a transfer portal is because the coaches complained so much about other coaches recruiting off their rosters. Mm-hmm. And, and that wasn't, I don't think that was happening. I think they just gotten a twist over the fact that if, if a player wanted to leave temple uh, and, and didn't, you know, wasn't sure where he was going to go, he called his AAU coach and said, I want to leave the AAU coach called a couple places he was interested in. So asked the coach, Hey, my guy's unhappy. Do you have a spot uh, and a scholarship? And if the answer was yes, then the player would transfer there. And the coaches got all upset over it. So now we've got the transfer portal. Now the coaches are, man, we're going to have people poaching off other rosters. They're going to recruit. It's not that they're against transfers or against the players being happy. They don't trust each other. <laughs> and so and so. They're, really what they're saying is we are such an unethical group we need protections we need the players to have to sit out a year and, and and have a have a penalty on the players because we the coaches are untrustworthy and and I, I i argue with those guys all the time they're friends of mine saying that's not a very good reason to restrict the movement of a player is because the coaches can't be trusted you know that, that's not that that doesn't work that's not going to fly
0: yeah and and this year it's created because everybody in college can you, you can play through another year if you want to. It's created such a backlog with this NBA with this draft and players who might test the waters. Going, they don't have time to bring you in for a-. like in the past. You'd be a player who <clears throat> I know next year is my year, but I could go get a couple workouts with a few teams and get a sense. They don't have time, and with COVID, they're lim- they're going to be limited in who they can bring in. They're only going to really bring in players who who are in their p- wheelhouse of drafting right now. And it's created, you know, even the seniors have to apply for the draft. And so it's created uh, the whole scouting structure will be how it's gone the last year. Um it'll be interesting to see how many mistakes there are in the draft, how much the decision how much did the decision makers get to see the players they're selecting, how much um I, some were pretty limited in in getting out and, and seeing them. So I think that's gonna be, you know, we're still three months away from the draft. I think it's gonna be interesting the impact that has on everything. I, I think with the Portal 2J, and I I'm with you, put pl- the player freedom movement, just like any other student in any other discipline in university. But I do wonder, and I had Mikhail Bridges on the pod a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about this a little bit. Mikhail Bridges was a redshirt at Villanova, not a top 100. He was a fringe, um, a little bit of a fringe recruit for them, a little bit of a late bloomer. Redshirts his freshman year, stays, plays three years, wins two national titles. And I think there's something to be said for his experience there. It was right for him. And, you know, even the coaches there will tell you if we didn't redshirt him his freshman year, he would have been in our top eight. By the end of the year, he was going against Josh Hart every day. And I do worry that the the adversity you fight through as a player or even as a student whether you're homesick initially or you're not getting the minutes you thought you'd get or think you deserve or whatever staying and fighting through it is important I think I think there's a lot to be learned there and I do wonder if we're at a point where the moment it's hard I'm jumping. I'm jumping somewhere else because somebody else is telling me it's easier there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I have the same concern. the The question is, you know, on whom do you place that, you know, sort of that burden or responsibility? Do we say that, you know, as a uh, as a society or or as the NCAA itself as an organization, you know, we're, our, our policy is for you to go through adversity. So we're going to have everybody sit out in every sport. You know, that, that's been the biggest problem with the NCAA is their rules don't match up to their mm-hmm. rhetoric. So, you know, they, they, they allowed free transfers in, what, 27 out of the 32 sports that they sponsor. Only five sports had to sit out a year. And, and you know, when you ask the coaches this, because they'll say a similar thing, and I think it comes from the right place, as yours does. But one of the things I, I asked him, I said, now, when you went into their living room, did you talk to them about how much adversity they were going to go through and the fact that they might not play their freshman year at all? And they might be coming off the bench and all that stuff, or did you talk about their NBA future and kind of just get them there? And because you know, maybe maybe the coaches need to stop lying to them. And and because look, I got I got recruited and it was a long time ago, but but coaches all lied, and and actually the ones who told the truth stood out um, because they want you there first and foremost, and then you're going to find out how it really is. Uh, So you know, if it goes beyond. Um, like I think there's a logical problem that the NCAA has with its with its uh, transfer rules over the the years. One has been the idea that you need a year in residence, where so you can come in out of high school and be eligible to play right away. You don't need to get used to your school. But if you transfer from one school or not to another with college experience, boy, you need a year to right. get used to that new school. That does, that doesn't make any sense at all. And the coaches will say, well, you know, these players made a commitment. So, so they need to be bound by that commitment that they're making out of high school, not knowing what college is all about, but once they know what college is all about, after they've been through it, they can't be trusted to make the decision that this isn't right for me. I want to go somewhere else. Um, I I think if we had a rule that said, like, I've, I've talked to coaches about it and some administrators saying, look, if you wanted to, to have a year in residence, if that was your goal. Um, The way to do it is and make it justifiable is to base it on academics. So if, the, if a player transfers from Temple to Duke to your uh, example before about Temple and and the credits from Temple make that player on time to graduate at Duke as soon as they get there, then they're eligible right away. If not, then they got to sit out the year. I mean, that that would be a legitimate academic reason and give you some cover. But this stuff about just having to sit out a year period when you're given waivers here and there for hardship reasons, and you're only doing it in five sports, um, it's going to fail all those tests. And And look, I think the NCAA punted on transfers for one reason or one reason only. They were fighting about money in court, and they don't want to be made to look bad in all these other areas that matter less to them than fighting over players getting money. And so that's where they planted their flag with the Supreme Court and all these other places uh, in Congress and and all these other areas. They just needed to clean up to make it make it appear that our rules actually make sense and they're fair to the athletes. So they punted on all these issues and came up with a stupid transfer portal, which makes no, the transfer portal itself makes no sense. It would be like if there was a, for, for, for spouses, if there was a divorce portal. You know, like, like, I don't know if I have a landing spot, but I want to see what my value is in <laughs> the market. You know, it's, it's really stupid.
0: <laughs> okay, you've got two weeks to go out and see if you can upgrade, and, and I've got two weeks to go out to know that I can't possibly upgrade, but we'll, yeah, let's see how that plays out. Jay and it's funny you talked about the promises that are made in recruiting and you're exactly right because it's it's all about here are my ten guys in the NBA here's how here you remind me of this guy that came through here and because uh, that's what guys want to hear, but part of it is that's what they've been told whether it's to go on a travel team to get recruited to high school, to maybe switch high schools, switch travel teams, the agent process um. There are a lot of people telling young people exactly what they want to hear to get them. And then once they have them, worried that they're going to lose them. So continuing to not always be honest about whatever it is. And I see you see it in the NBA and free agency when you're out, when teams go to bring players in and it's, hey, listen, you're not going to have to practice. You're going to be able to we'll keep you we'll keep the media at a distance there's a million big things and small things in f- free agent recruiting that goes on that is a continuation of everything of a system that the players have have you know many top players have had from 15 16 years old and then all of a sudden we want like they ask well how certain guys fit into a team situation, but you've sold the individual over, you've sold the individual over the team at every level, but then you expect them to always be great teammates or it's just become, it's, it's interesting how it's played out. And I, and I think just what we're going to see, how this moves upward into the NBA is going to, um, It is going to be interesting. And, you know, we we talked about the Ignite team for a moment. Like that system, and you've had Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga, and Jalen Green could have been at, you know, Memphis or Kentucky, I think were his final couple schools, and ends up in the bubble for a month with Kaminga. They play on the same team. They have some veteran players on their team. The NBA guys loved it. The the executives who went and scouted them said, I could see them on an NBA court. I could see them with NBA rules, NBA three-point line. I see them playing against older players, um, with older players, and against older players, and it was a much, it was a much better vehicle to evaluate that player, especially in a COVID year where they may not have been able to get to uh, an ACC game or an SEC game as regularly, and so uh, th- that's going to be again, and those guys all got in that five hundred thousand dollar range, the the elite player there, and so and the G league is aggressively Sharif Abdul Rahim and Rod Strickland who are working. Uh, Sharif is the, is the president of the G league. They are aggressive in recruiting these players. I know some of the college coaches are angry about it, um, but there's a marketplace and, and they're in it now. And so it's an interesting, just how players are getting to the league now is, is rapidly changing.
1: Yeah. It's no longer a monopoly for college sports. And for years, as you know, uh, you know, college. I think NCAA administrators have talked about we're the only system in the world that you know ties education to big time athletics, whether e- even Olympic sports. I mean, you know, you keep hearing now in the in the ongoing debate over athlete compensation that if if athletes are allowed NIL or further compensation, that's gonna that's gonna really hurt this nation's Olympic movement because if Olympic sports are compromised in any way, that's going to, that's going to compromise our nation's ability to be competitive in international competition to win medals. And my first reaction to that was, so that's on the athlete too. Now our nation's Olympic movement is on their shoulders as well. Um, It's just an odd, we've got a really odd system that doesn't exist anywhere else. And maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe it's not because we're smarter Maybe it's because of the rest of the world is. <laughs> and, you know, they, when I played professionally in, in uh, Italy and Spain, you know, the, the clubs I played for had junior teams and, you know, they were respond, you know, they helped the, the players get educated, but it was they didn't play for a school team or a university team. They played for a professional club, even when they were young teenagers. And I'm not saying it's a better system because we can't flip our system to that I- overnight. And college isn't just going to give up on billions of dollars. They're going to stay in this game. Uh, but I think there's a place for all of these different avenues. I don't think they're necessarily good or bad. Uh, it depends on what each individual wants. But but I, I am always talking to my colleagues about, not my ESPN colleagues, but you know, folks in basketball that when they talk about, well, this player's not ready for the NBA, that's not necessarily the analysis. Like you can go into the G League, and I think you'd agree with this Woj. And you can work—you know—you you can work on your game without restriction and get a hell of a lot better. It's just it's not on television every week like college is, and so there's an argument to be made that that's a the better place to develop as a basketball player than than college basketball is, and and people need to wrap their heads around that because that's the reality.
0: No, that's right, and and this draft, and we. We talked about it. Jonathan Kaminga, Jalen Green, these are players are probably going to go, the the two most prominent players from the Ignite program in the G League this year, you know, are in that three to five range. They're going to go high in this draft. Uh, Jonathan Gavoni and Mike Schmidt so far, they've talked about maybe regardless. I think certainly Jonathan, and we talked about this recently, regardless of team need or who has the first pick, to them, Cade Cunningham, is the number one pick uh, the forward from Oklahoma State? Where, where do you fall on that, Jay? Is that is that how you see it at this early point?
1: Yeah, I, I think Mike. You mentioned Mike Schmitz and Jonathan Gavoni. I I know Mike a little bit better than Jonathan. They're two spectacular, spectacularly good uh, talent evaluators. And Mike Mike is the the best I've I've come across. Um, I, I think Cade Cunningham is the best player I've seen, the best prospect. Uh, I know Evan Mobley from USC and Jalen Suggs of Gonzaga mm-hmm. are both uh, within shouting distance, but if it were my decision, uh, I would, I would take Cade Cunningham. Um, he, he's just got a, uh, not only a skill set, but a, a, but a maturity to his game uh, and a smoothness to it that is uncommon. And, uh, and so I, I put him just a, a tad above those others. I don't, you know, I've only seen on tape, this year uh, through watching a little bit of green and Kaminga. So I have to dive into them a little bit more, but I, I, I don't know of anyone that's suggesting that they should go above Cunningham. I, 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 I can't imagine that.
0: Jay, are you at all? I mean, listen, uh, Anthony Edwards was the number one overall pick in the draft. I think early in the season, there was a sense of, Hey, maybe and this happens every year. Ah, uh, they missed. It should have been Lamelo Ball, and all of a sudden, Anthony Edwards starts to get his footing in the league. And now you see, with his size and strength, and he's been very consistent. Timberwolves are winning. What you've seen out of out of Edwards is that what you imagined. It it looks different than what we saw at Georgia a year ago. Um, was he always consensus number one in your mind, or or at the time were you making a were you thinking about making a case for? whether it was Weissman or Ball at it one?
1: It was it Weissman was that I was struggling with a little bit being one. Uh, uh, I had Edwards number one the whole way. And you're always, you know how it is, you're always kind of second guessing and, and stress testing your, your judgment or opinion because you're wrong sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, but, but I think I mentioned this on the air and, and you and I talked about it. I mean, 10 years ago, uh, James Weissman would have been the number one pick and it would have been a discussion um but the games changed and i still think if i if i were to draft it again or 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 sort of analyze it again knowing what i know now i'd probably still go in the same order mm-hmm. that I, I look i'm i'm blown away with how talented lamelo ball is just blown away and i was uh, pleasantly surprised that he shot it as well as he did because i i thought that was going to take him longer uh, if if at all to be that kind of shooter uh, I still think that uh, Edwards has a chance to improve even more as a shooter uh, and and become uh, far more consistent. But I just I think the the overall profile and the way he plays that uh, that Edwards uh, I still think Edwards is the the number one pick.
0: Jay, thirteen years ago, and and you and I we've talked about this privately. We, we've I don't know that you've talked about this publicly, but. 13 years ago, you had an opportunity to go, uh, I think you've had a lot of opportunities to do other things, coaching, front office, but but a chance to be a general manager in the NBA and one that you thought long and hard about. Tell, Tell me that story. I was
1: in my law office. Um, I'm still a a, I guess I'm still a practicing lawyer, though I don't carry a practice like I used to. So I was in my office of 2007, I believe, and I got a phone call from essentially a headhunter asking if I would uh, I was there was interest in me as a uh, uh, front for a front office job in the NBA. Would I have interest in that? And I didn't hesitate. I said, yes, because I thought, you know, let's let's explore exactly what this is. They wouldn't tell me what the team was at the time. They came back to me with that. And I told them, I said, I'm going to have to know the team at some point. Um, but I wasn't, I didn't know kind of what the protocol was. How, is this the way it normally goes and, and all that stuff. So ultimately I found out it was the Houston Rockets. And, uh, and I talked to some friends of mine in the NBA that I trusted and I wanted to keep it very quiet. I didn't want anybody to know about it. And, uh, so I talked to only a few people and, uh, and I ultimately, uh, had to fly, flew to Houston to meet with uh, the owner at the time, Leslie Alexander. And so I had a two or three hour meeting. I can't remember how long it was in his like luxury condo in Houston and, uh, and, and left, you know, went by, flew back home to Charlotte. And I had spoken with a really close friend of mine, the MBA, and and he he told me exactly how he felt it was going to unfold. He said they're going to lay out all their salary cap info, they're going to lay out their roster, and they're going to ask you what you think and what changes you would make. And then he said, "Don't tell them." <laughs> he said they're trying to get a free evaluation of the team from you, and uh, and so I I did tell him one thing, but that was that was it. And, uh, and then I went home and, uh, I got another phone call. Uh, I don't remember how long later that, uh, that Leslie Alexander wanted to meet again and they wanted me to fly out to, uh, California. He had a home uh, on the cliffs in La Jolla. And so I flew to San Diego and I, uh, I went to his home and met with him just overlooking. I grew up in in Los Angeles, so I'd been to La Jolla many times but uh i hadn't been in a house like that overlooking the pacific <laughs> from the cliffs it was pretty nice and so he wanted to grab a bite to eat so we we went into downtown la jolla and we sat at this little outdoor cafe and after talking for a half hour 45 minutes um he looked at me and said i'd like you to take the job do you want it and uh and i, I wasn't sure is this an offer or what but i i said well Ah, uh, in the abstract, I do, but we haven't talked terms yet. You know, we, we'd have to talk terms before I could, uh, I could accept the job, and and he kind of, I I don't know the right word for it. Woj, he it, he didn't tense up, but he got a little quiet, and then he said, "I'll have my people do the negotiation with you." And we just finished lunch and and had a nice time, and I flew home, and then I I wound up negotiating the rest of the way with his lawyers. Um, but uh, I will tell you this You'd get a laugh out of this So Jeff Van Gundy was the coach at yes. the time So another good buddy of mine The NBA um, Said it, when We talked a little bit about the negotiation And uh, I felt like I was capable Based upon my you know training as a lawyer Of handling the negotiation part But um, he, he did tell me one thing He said if you take the job The first phone call you need to make Is to Van Gundy And tell him you do not want to coach <laughs> And I'm like, what, why would I have to tell him? I don't want to coach. Like who would think I would want to coach in the NBA? He goes, I promise you, he's going to think that <laughs> he said, he said tell, tell him right away that you do not want to coach. And, uh, and oddly, so uh, you know, the negotiations um, uh, broke down and we couldn't come to terms and, and the Rockets hired, hired Daryl Morey, which was the exact right thing to do. They, they, they shouldn't have done anything with me, but I'm I, I'm glad that they did that because, uh, he did a magnificent job. He's a great, great professional. Um, but, uh, I, 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 there have only been two people, uh, outside of those that, that were, you know, sort of in that circle that have mentioned this to me. One was Van Gundy when, uh, when we started working together at ESPN, he said, hey, you were almost my boss. <laughs> and I was like, how did you know that? And the other was you. Yeah, th- those are the, the only two that ever said, so I, I, I thought I had done a really good job of keeping that quiet. And you were the only two that, uh, that ever mentioned it. Well,
0: what appealed to you about running a team?
1: Um, well, the idea that it was skin in the game. You know, it, 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 in in the job I have with ESPN, which I love, I absolutely love, and I've never I've never looked around, um, but there's always been a, a a feeling with me that there's it's not a competitive job. It, it's certainly competitive to do the best you can, and I think we all want you know, y'all, all of us look and, and say, hey, am I am I keeping pace with my colleague? Am I am I uh, among the better ones at this? Something like that. So you could get competitive that way, I'm sure. Um, but there's no win or loss after after a show or after a game. So you know you, you don't you don't get that same feeling you used to of of the high of winning or the low of losing. And I wanted to be a I, I thought I wanted to be a part of that again when, when it came to me. Um, and you, you mentioned, I mean, I I had another cup another offer to be a head coach in college uh, It was right before that. Um, uh, before the rockets thing. And ultimately I turned it down because my kids were, were younger. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't feel it was the right timing and I don't, I would never look at it again. Now I'm past those years of, of wanting to coach again. But, uh, but the skin in the game part was, was what really appealed to me, sort of the competitive aspect of it, which in my life, I don't have a ton of that anymore. Uh, since I don't practice law, like I used to, Uh, My only competition is for a $2 NASA
0: on a weekend with my friends. That's about it. You know, I I heard an interesting theory, and I don't know if it was from somebody who, who had played at Duke or somebody who was close to several of you guys and observed it, that the reason that so many of your peers, the guys you played with, and then were a little ahead of you and a little behind you, perhaps- got into coaching front office was because they had such a good experience being a part of team and being a part of something and they wanted it to continue or they wanted they they wanted to carry it on in their own lives and you look at you know from your your duke group that um, you know people saw in the 30 for 30 where you were all sitting around having dinner and uh you know, from Quinn, Quinn Snyder to Danny Ferry to Billy King, um, uh, David Henderson coached, uh, is in the NBA, uh, You know, a number of other guys from that era that got into it. And I, I, I think there's something to that.
1: I do, actually. Um, and I had brought this up with Tommy Amaker, who is a teammate of mine and still one of my closest friends, who's a head coach at Harvard. Uh, and, and we had remarked that how many of us and not just our group, uh, back in the, the mid eighties, but, uh, guys that had played at Duke after us, uh, a few, even before Chip England, uh, was a teammate of mine who, who's now with the San Antonio Spurs and regarded as if not the best, one of the best shooting coaches in, in the game. You know, Tommy, I had mentioned to Tommy, like, God, so many of us are still in and around basketball. And, and I joked that. Uh, well, we just didn't want to get real jobs and kind of, kind of making fun of it. And, and he, he very like, I don't want to say too seriously, but he, he said, no, that's not it. He said, he said, we had such a great experience that, that we, we want to duplicate it. You know, we want to, we want to continue it. And I, I I thought about that quite a bit and I think he was right that we did have such a good experience, not only playing for coach K, but being with one another and, uh, and, you know, like you've mentioned some of the names, whether it's Billy King, Danny Ferry, Quinn Snyder, those guys. I mean, it, it, it's it, I don't want to say it's unusual, but I don't think it's the norm. Let's put it that way, that you're going to be around so many people, not only that you really like, but that you admire. And, and uh, I, I really admire those guys because they're, they're, they're so good at what they do. Like, I think Quinn Snyder is one of the best coaches I've ever been around at any level. And he's a savant, um, and I knew. Look, I knew he, he was the smartest guy on our team. Not, not that that was any great shakes back then, but he was the smartest guy. And uh, so it's never surprised me what he's done, uh, and, and the high level that that he competes at and and operates the space he operates in. But but to be around that many guys that are that are that competent in what they do uh, is is pretty extraordinary.
0: You know, it's funny you mentioned Quinn Snyder, and and you're right, he's. I always say if you were to do a draft of NBA coaches, make all 30 available and owners and, or team presidents, whoever's going to decide, GMs, we can go out and draft just like we would the number one pick in the draft. And I think at the very top of that would be Eric Spolstra, Quinn Snyder. He wouldn't, Quinn Snyder wouldn't get past, wouldn't get past four. I'd be surprised if he got the third. I mean, he's, he's that good. And you've seen the coaches like Spo, like Quinn Snyder, Monty Williams does this. They run it like a, this, and this is hard to do in the NBA because the turnover typically is so that usually there's just a lot of turnover and it it's hard to run it like a program. And you've seen what Monty's done in Phoenix, taking over that organization, which has been just um, a mess for a long time. And, uh, you know Tom Thibodeau brings Tom Thibodeau brings a program uh, in New York, and and you see the success. But but Quinn's done it for you know with Dennis Lindsay and, and now Justin Zanuck and their front office and a core of players. And and what I it's so interesting to me about Quinn is he knows who his kind of player is. And like you think like Joe Ingles was a player he saw in Russia, and when he was over in Russia for a season. And he gets cut by the Clippers. And Quinn's like, let's get that guy in here. And all of a sudden, it's, I don't know, eight years later. And, and, you know, to me, the, the great coaches know exactly the kind of, they, they have the ability to, to see a player and know exactly how he fits in the way they want to play. And you've just seen them create this style of play in Utah that's so unique, so versatile. They defend at the highest level. They're shooting threes at a historic clip. And they can go big on you, small and, and just and you always hear players there talk about Quinn's attention to detail that separates them. And, and um, in so many ways, I think Quinn is so much more. I think the NBA fit him so much more than college basketball.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and to your point about attention to detail, I was visiting Quinn several years ago. It's probably five years ago now. Um and so he he was having uh, it was preseason they were playing the Clippers at a preseason game that night that so I spent the day with him and his staff and and uh, and so they have a meeting room just off their their practice facility there in Salt Lake and Quinn had his entire staff in there and they're going through a meeting they're going to have with the players in the next half hour. Uh, and the players there, there were some players that were, were coming into the facility, some were eating, you know, and all that. And then they're going to have this meeting. So they they went over the meeting start to finish. And the meeting was uh, that they were going to have, including film with the players. Where it ran 10 minutes. And so Quinn, as soon as they ended it, the mock meeting, Quinn says, all right, we're going to cut this out. And we're, I want to cut this down. I want this meeting to be uh, uh, eight minutes and 15 seconds. And that's it. And then they're out. And, and we're going to put these six guys on the floor, these six guys in the weight room, and flip them after X amount of time. And so then they bring the team in. Uh, this is 15, 20 minutes later after they had some time to trim their, their, uh, their couple of minutes or whatever it was to get it down to eight minutes, 15 seconds. And they came in and they had the tightest eight minute, 15 second meeting. And I timed it. And it was eight minutes, 15 seconds. And the players were in and out and got everything they needed. Now, some people might look at that and say, "Well, anal retentive or whatever, uh, overdoing it." It was, it was like the attention to detail of it. It was perfect, and the, but it wasn't perfect because um, of chance. It was perfect because they took the time to run through it and then and then hone it and and to make sure they didn't waste the players' time and got the most out of it. It was really impressive. I was I was blown away by it.
0: Jay, last thing. The the trend we've seen in college basketball of hiring former NBA players who may be alums, and, and you've seen the success. I think Jawan Howard started uh, a trend here. Obviously, Patrick Ewing came sooner at Georgetown. He said some success. he got to the tournament this year. You know, Jawan Howard has turned not just coached and had Michigan winning at a at a high level, but he's recruiting at a high level. And then you see. Um, you know Mike Woodson at Indiana, uh, Texas Tech with Darvin Ham, who I think is an outstanding coach, and I think ultimately Darvin Ham not taking that job. He's a Bucks assistant, played at Texas Tech. Uh, People remember him for shattering the backboard. He was on the cover of SI. It's funny. I look back. I thought Darvin had like I thought he was like a twenty-two point a game score there. I think he averaged like eight or ten points, but he he tore that rim down, and so you remember remember that. But he's He's going to be NBA head coach. And I think in the end, he decided to keep pushing along those lines. Um, it's it's funny. We've seen schools bring back in the past, you know, Chris Mullen at St. John's mixed success. They did get to the tournament. Clyde Drexler at Houston, uh, not very successful. Um, you know, we've seen great, play. I mean, all the way back to, you know, Willis Reed at uh, Creighton. You want to go back. He was a, he hadn't played there, but he was a, brought him in as a college coach. Uh, it feels like it's, um, you know, again, the, and Juwan's unique, not just a great player, but was very well schooled as an assistant coach in Miami, working for Eric Spolstra in that program, you get ready, you you know, you are prepared to become a head coach, but college is a different animal and the recruiting is a different animal. And, uh, but it feels like Juwan has been able to just harness his presence and uh, all the things that make him a really unique individual. You can see he's ported into their recruiting and into their, into their team and coaching and created a great environment there. And listen, there's only so many of these guys out there. Not every school even has one, but, but what do you, do you imagine this is a a structure that we're going to see more of or, or is Juwan an anomaly? because he's just such a unique, unique individual.
1: Well, he may be an anomaly in how good he is, but I don't think he's an anomaly in, you know, we're not going to see others uh, do it uh, in a similar fashion or be capable of doing it. And, and I'd be interested to hear what you think of this because I've always, I've always felt like uh, like the lines were drawn too rigidly between the NBA and college uh, in the past that, you know, we always talked about, well, you know, a college coach can't make it in the NBA, things like that. that th- those were years ago. Uh, and I wasn't sure whether it was sort of a thing where where the NBA felt like it's a little bit of a closed community. So they wanted to make it seem like it was tougher. But usually the college coaches that went in the NBA took the worst jobs. And anybody mm-hmm. who took that job is going to get canned in three or four years and and be deemed a failure. Um, but, you know, over the years, most of the coaches that did well in the NBA had coached in college at some point. Um, there's a learning curve in anything, but I think the lines are now blurred that, uh, you know, Brad Stevens, uh, uh Billy Donovan, uh, and we've had others, PJ Carlissimo did it too, and didn't mm-hmm. get credit for it because of the way things ended, but they've gone into the NBA and done well right out of the gate because of the, maybe in part because of the jobs they took, but you know, college ain't rocket science either. And there are some sensibilities in college. You have to, in the, at the college level, you have to be aware of that, um, You know, most college administrators don't like hearing NBA. Uh, I'm on the competition committee uh, for the NCAA, which deals only with the rules of play. And I can tell you there have been times over the years when you've mentioned, well, this rule is in the NBA. And people almost recoil saying, well, we don't want to be like the NBA. I'm like, why? You don't want to be profitable and fun and, you know, <laughs> and watched. Um, you know, there's a reason that they have those rules but I think we're going to keep seeing uh, NBA coaches do well in college. And I think we're going to keep seeing some college coaches uh, get opportunities in the NBA and, and they're going to, they're going to be determined by how good they are, not necessarily by whether they were in college or the NBA first.
0: Yeah. And I I think about the guys and you mentioned some of them to me, the, the most important trait a college coach can have coming to the NBA is an understanding that he is not the star. Mm -hmm. And I think, when you look at Billy Donovan, Brad Stevens, uh, let, let's say those two, for example, who've been most most recent most recent examples of coaches who've made the move up and had success, it's understanding that they were not interested in the celebrity necessarily that came. I think Billy Donovan understood you had to be the face of a program and you needed to sell it, but he inherently wasn't comfortable with being. The, the the, way some college coaches create the celebrity because when you get to the NBA, the, the even whether you have whether you, whether you're coaching Michael Jordan or the worst team in the league, the players even your the worst the worst star player in the league, the the leading scorer in the worst team in the league is still the star of that environment, and and the the players have to know that the coach isn't trying to upstage them and quite honestly listen Rick Pitino and John Calipari are great coaches Rick Pitino is an all-time coach but I think Rick had one run with the Knicks early but when he came back to Boston and I think for for Pitino in Boston and for Calipari with the Nets at the time that was hard for them and I think there were things their struggles had to do with their um, how they viewed themselves in that environment, how the players viewed them. And so I think Donovan, Brad Stevens were, you know, really successful in that way in that they were, um, they deferred all of that. And so I think, and I think temperament, you know, both, both have a temperament, you know, PJ, you look back at PJ and, you know, PJ had a very intense college temperament and at times in the NBA, it's, you, it was different even when PJ coached than now, But but that's different. You can't coach eighty two games the way you can thirty, and you can't coach grown men and professionals, older players the way maybe you can eighteen to twenty one. But you know, and I think ultimately, like the reason most guys don't want to go back to college. I've never met a coach at the NBA level who, if he had a choice, now some do go back to college because that's their chance to be a head coach. Either I. I can't get another job. I've been a head coach in the NBA, but I'm not getting another job. And I can get years on a contract and, and I'll go back to college. But not anybody's really choosing to do that. And, and it, it typically goes back to the recruiting. Um, I remember Billy Donovan saying that to me when he, even in his first year in Oklahoma City, like when practice ended, he didn't have to go grab his phone and have 20 missed calls and all the people he's got to call back. He just had to worry about the, the 12, 13 guys. And, and, you know, in college, you end up spending so much time on guys. He like said, guys that you're never going to coach and having to build relationships with players you're never going to coach or in the NBA, you can pour yourself into that group you have. and But if you don't like your team in college, you can go get a brand new one pretty quick. Can't do that in the NBA. And so there's those and minuses. But I do think, um, you know, the Brad Stevens thing got a lot of attention. I, I reported a couple of weeks ago that Indiana was prepared to offer him seven years, 70 million. And I understand people were comparing it to Mike Woodson's deal. And I would say, well, Brad's making high sixes, 7 million in Boston. So if you're going to get Brad Stevens to leave the Boston Celtics, you're going to have to throw a crazy number at him. And even then that's not going to probably do it, but it's like, well, we're going to try. He got Butler two NCAA title games and um, we're, it makes sense. It, it made all the sense for them to try for him, you know. But Mike Woodson was an assistant in New York, making four or five hundred thousand dollars a year, and gets three million dollars a year in Indiana. While well, guys, they didn't have to offer him ten million to get him to go. And so, to me, that was more marketplace of, you know, they they, they would have preferred to pay Brad Stevens three million dollars a year. Problem is, he makes seven. So, um, but for Mike, it was a great. It was a coming home. He's you know obviously played there looks like he's put a really good staff together around him and and we'll see, you know, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, like the recruiting itself is especially in the portal, it never stops and you're not just recruiting. You're always recruiting your own players and the time you have to take to keep recruiting your own guys. It's, it's a fascinating, um, you know, like you kind of expected Bill Self was Bill Self ever going to go to the NBA. Could he do it? And uh, I think you're right. A lot of guys could do it. Like a coach to me and just retired line Kruger, I mean, what a great coach, just one of the great coaches of his era, Um, you know, went to Atlanta, the roster stunk. And I think Tom Izzo has wrestled with this. Tom Izzo has had a number of opportunities to go to the NBA. And I think at times looked at himself and said, and I've talked to some coaches who he's asked for advice on it. And I think for Izzo, like, does my style, is my style going to translate? Do I want to go through the losing that you are going to do if you're taking over a bad team? And I think for a lot of guys, you know it's um, when you have a place like Michigan State and you are synonymous with the program, or Mike Cheshevsky at Duke has had any number of chances to go to the NBA John Thompson at Georgetown had any number of chances to go, and I, I don't know that any of those guys who are iconic figures at a one school, I'm not sure any of them really would look back and say, "I regret not going i i um I, I wonder, you know. I think Mike got to do it with Team USA. He got to coach. He got the best of the NBA. He just got to coach the best players and have to coach any of the bad ones. Um, but I, I, I do think you're right. That the relationship between the two has kind of always been evolving.
1: Yeah, you made great points, and especially about sort of the the demeanor and the fact that you you have to acknowledge you're not going to be the marquee, the star, because in college and it's in large measure because of the recruiting piece that you know you have to be me me forward and but I think the one thing I've I've always kind of laughed at on the college level is people think that that some, maybe fans more so than anyone think that these coaches can come in and they're they're just going to win and they're only going to win if they bring in the best players like I don't care how good of a coach you are unless you have the best players you're not going to win you might win more than somebody else would have with the same players that 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 can be but you're not going to be final four good unless you've got the best players um you, you just don't see guys taking substandard teams to to great success uh, or rosters to great success um so that, hey you can you can lose with great players but you can't win without them and the NBA acknowledges that better than anybody. That, that's a player that, you know, I think both of them are players, um, players leagues, if you will, uh, but they acknowledge it more in the NBA than they do in college. Co- college is reluctant to admit that uh, that the players win the championships, not not just the
0: coaches. That's right. That's right. But uh, Jay, this was uh, this was a lot of fun. It's always fun catching up with you. I know we'll start to see each other here a little more as we have the combine coming here at some point, And then. I don't know, at some point this summer, actually, it's three months away, uh, the NBA draft uh, in late July. And so, um, you know, we'll start ramping up for that.
1: Looking forward to it, Woj. Thanks for having me, man. This is fun. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, ESPN's Jay Billis. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of The Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts Be sure to also listen to The Low Post with Zach Lowe and The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst. We'll catch you next time.